You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Good morning, everyone. Please turn to Job chapter 40. We are in Job chapter 40 this morning. Almost done. I know that's probably encouraging to some of you at least. Almost done with the book of Job. We only have this week, I think, and next week. uh, And then we will be on to something else. All right, Job chapter 40. A DEA officer, that would be the Drug Enforcement Administration, right? A DEA officer stopped at a ranch in Montana and talked with an old rancher. He told the rancher, I need to inspect your ranch for illegally grown drugs. The rancher said, okay, but don't go into that field over there, as he pointed out the location. The DEA officer verbally exploded, saying, mister, I have the authority of the federal government with me. Reaching into his jacket pocket, he removed his badge and proudly displayed it to the rancher. See this badge? This badge means that I'm allowed to go wherever I wish on any land, no questions asked. Do you understand? The rancher nodded politely, apologized, and went about his chores. A short time later, the old rancher heard a loud scream. He looked up and saw the DEA officer running for his life, being chased by the rancher's big longhorn bull. With every step, the bull was gaining ground on the officer, and it seemed likely that he'd sure enough get gored before he reached safety. The officer was clearly terrified. The rancher threw down his tools, ran to the fence, and yelled at the top of his lungs, Your badge! Show him your badge! Let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Stop right there, right? No, that's just a joke. That's just a joke. But what makes this funny, I mean, of course, is the idea that the agent could wave his badge and stop the charging bull. Yeah, the the badge is just a symbol of legal authority, not of actual physical power. Physically, a man would be helpless to overcome a charging bull that way. He might escape. Or he might outwit the bull, but he couldn't win in a contest of strength. And I don't know, this seems like maybe an unfortunate time to put this in or a bad time to put this in. But uh, such a a thing happened in real life back in October of 2012, just almost exactly five years ago now. A man from Shepherd, Montana, that's over northeast of Billings a little bit, was killed by a longhorn bull that he owned similar to this one. Uh, authorities believed that the man had gone out to feed the bull when the bull attacked him. And no doubt he'd done that many times before, you know. And it was just something that finally finally caught up with him. And I hope that the reason I'm telling you both of those things will become plain here in just a little bit. Now, in our last two messages, beginning with Job chapter 38, we've been looking at God's response to Job. Job repeatedly wished for and even demanded that God respond to him and provide an explanation for how there was any justice in Job's suffering. God does respond, but he doesn't explain or even mention Job's suffering. 
Instead, God gives three things for Job to consider that tell why Job's suffering was not unjust and that would give Job a new perspective on who God is and how Job needed to understand him. And first, two weeks ago, we we studied this, God asked Job the question, Can you explain my creation? Followed by a discussion of the physical universe and its qualities, all of which Job could never have imagined, much less implemented. Then in last week's message, we heard God ask the question, Can you direct my creation? God used various examples from the animal world to show that God designed them all to exist and to live without any assistance from Job or any other person. Not only did Job not need to take care of all the animals in the world, he would have been powerless to do so. And this week, God asked Job another question related to our opening story, Can you subdue my creation? And here uh, we, we, we recap again. God first demonstrated that Job could not have thought of all the physical properties and phenomena of the universe, not to mention actually creating them all. Job could not do that. Then God showed how inadequate Job would be if he had to tell all the animals how to live and and to provide for their needs. But in today's message, God makes it clear through uh, interesting illustrations. God makes it clear that Job could not even overpower two particular animals that God had created demonstrating then, these three things all taken together, demonstrating that Job had no right to demand a hearing or anything else of God. And today's message is called, Can You Subdue My Creation? We'll start in Job 40, verse 6. And think again, keep in mind, either one of those things or both that you want to think of, the the joke where the guy, you know, couldn't, his his badge wasn't going to save him, or, you know, the man who was actually killed by his bull. He was powerless to save himself. Verse 6 of Job 40 is where we'll start. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity, and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud, and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud, and humble him, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together, bind them in the hidden place. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Remember, this is God speaking to Job. Okay? And so when God first spoke to Job back in chapter 38, he instructed Job to prepare himself to have a contest with God. That's what it means when it says here, too. Uh, now gird up your loins like a man. It's prepare yourself to have a contest. It's like a, it's like a wrestling match. God says the same thing to Job here, perhaps sarcastically adding again, I will ask you and you instruct me. This is God speaking to Job. You think he really meant that? You, really, you, you think he really thought Job was going to instruct him somehow? No. No, of course not. Back in chapters 21, 24, and 27, Job accused God of afflicting him unjustly and at the same time letting the wicked go free, letting the wicked prosper. Here, God asks Job pointedly, will you condemn me that you may be justified? Is your point of view really that much more correct than mine, Job? You, you really think you have it right and I have it wrong? 
Will you really annul my judgment? Job has put forth the position that his judgment is superior to God's. And now God is calling him out. You really think you're right and I'm wrong, Job? We'll just see about that. And then God challenges Job to a duel of grandeur. In Psalm 93, verse 1, it says, The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. And those concepts are, are connected, that God has clothed himself with majesty and that the world is firmly established. As the all-powerful creator, God is recognized as having power and majesty far above all other beings. In verse 10 of Job 40, God challenges Job to clothe himself in majesty, honor, eminence, and dignity, as though Job could somehow compare with God in those things. Well, Job, you've compared yourself with me in other ways. Why not these, right? In Matthew chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, Jesus said that even King Solomon, with all of his wealth, with all of his fancy clothing and jewelry that his wealth could buy, King Solomon could not compare in beauty to a simple flower, Jesus said, the lily of the field, that quickly withers and dies. The splendor of man, including that of Job, including that of me and you, cannot compare to the splendor and majesty of God. And then, in Job 40, verses 11 through 14, God issues his third challenge here in this little section, the three challenges. Job, is your judgment greater than God's? Job, is your majesty greater than God's? Well, here's the third challenge that God issues to Job, and it leads into the main focus of the entire passage. God essentially says to Job, you think I've done such a terrible job of putting the wicked in their place? Then you do it, Job. You humble the proud person. You punish the wicked person. You give them what their deeds deserve. How about that? Can you do that, Job? If you can do that, then I'll declare you the winner of our contest, and I'll admit that you can save yourself. Now, even as God makes this offer, it should be clear to Job that Job is already the loser in this contest. If Job really were superior to God in judgment or splendor or power to subdue, well, then he could have solved the problem of his affliction, and he wouldn't need God to intervene. God probably could have stopped here, having made his point with Job, but God really wants to drive the point home, so we continue in verse 15. And what we have here in the rest of this is, is two fairly long sections of Scripture. And I'm going to read the whole thing because this is the only time God speaks. I mean, there's a little bit in chapter 42. This is really the only time God speaks. And I want to read everything that God has to say. Okay, I want to read all those words. We read a lot of what Eliphaz and Bildad and, and uh, Zophar and Elihu, we read everything Elihu said and Job read everything he said. I want to read everything that God has to say uh, in response to Job. Verse 15 he says this, Behold now, Behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now, his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Let his maker Bring near his sword. Surely the mountains bring him food, and all the beasts of the field play there. Under the lotus plants he lies down in the covert of the reeds and the marsh. The lotus plants cover him with shade. The willows of the brook surround him. If a river rages, he is not alarmed. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes to his mouth. 
Can anyone capture him when he is on watch? With barbs, can anyone pierce his nose? Now, before we get into the details here, let's consider the question of which animal is being discussed. You might have some footnotes that give you some guidance there. Uh, some believe that the two animals mentioned here, Behemoth and Leviathan, that we're going to get to a little bit later, are mythical beasts that somehow relate to the false religious beliefs of the people of Job's time. I'm not at all convinced of that. Given the list of real animals that, Job, that God has just described in Job chapters 38 and 39, it does not seem to me that God has somehow suddenly shifted to referring to imaginary beasts here. And God specifically states in verse 15 that he made Behemoth. God says, I made him, just like I made you, Job. And so he tells Job twice here to behold, like, look, look over there, Job, and see, look at him, right? So to behold Behemoth as though one were standing right there. So I'm convinced we're talking about real animals. So the questions are which ones, right? The traditional view of Behemoth is that it is either a hippopotamus or an elephant, with most commentators that I've read at least coming down on the side of the hippo. There's one now. One of those in your backyard, right? No, probably not. Um, I mean, hippos are powerful grass eaters that spend time in and around water. Those seem to be the main qualifiers that persuade some that these verses refer to the hippo. But it's difficult for me to reconcile the descriptions of he bends his tail like a cedar. You can't see it in this picture, but the hippo's tail. You've been to the zoo? You've seen the little hippo tail? It's like... It's like this long. Yeah, that's what he's doing, right? Okay. It's difficult to re, to, to, for me to reconcile that with uh, God's description of he bends his tail like a cedar. Or even that he is the first of the ways of God, which possibly indicated that he was the largest of the land animals. Now some say that the elephant fits that description, but the tail cedar comparison is still lacking, right? Okay. Go with me. Just just put up with me here for a minute. What, what about a creature like this? If my, there, yeah. What about a creature like that? Huh. Uh, th- this is an artist, artist's rendering of the titanosaur, which could have been as much as 120 feet long and weighed almost 80 tons. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, here's the hippo in approximately correct scale comparison. That would be the hippo standing next to the titanosaur, if they ever did that. I don't know if they ever did that, but there it is, right? The tail of the titanosaur seems to me much more like a cedar tree, long and powerful. The bones, as it's described in our passage here, like tubes of bronze, like bars of iron, they would have been much larger, much stronger than those of a hippo. In fact, uh, if you can see the laser here, I don't know whether it was this bone. I meant to get the picture, but I forgot. I don't know whether it was this bone here or this bone here in the foreleg, but they show uh, where they were un- uh, digging one of these up in Argentina, and they had a guy laying down next to this bone, and he was not quite as tall as that bone is from here to here, okay? There was a man laying down on the, on the ground next to the bone. The hippo is about five feet or so at the shoulder, can be as much as 13 feet long, all right? It gives you a little uh, scale comparison here. All right, so... Uh, if we accept the Genesis account of creation, titanosaurs, hippos, and humans were all created on day six. 
So the thought of Job living at the same time as the dinosaur shouldn't really cause us any difficulty. And in January of 2014, I think this is really interesting, it was reported that titanosaur fossils were discovered in Saudi Arabia, which would not be far from where Job probably lived. Yeah, isn't that cool, right? I'm not saying that you must believe that Behemoth was a dinosaur of some kind. I don't care what you believe about Behemoth. What kind of animal it is really doesn't matter, except the, the qualities matter, but not really what the name of it was. But it's an interesting possibility. I'm just going to keep that up there while we talk about it a little bit, okay? Now, first of all, God begins this section by saying that he created both Job and Behemoth. And that puts Job in his place right now. Job created neither God nor Behemoth, and Behemoth created neither God nor Job. God alone is the creator. There's no question that he, God, can subdue his own creation, including Behemoth and Job, for that matter. The question here is whether Job can subdue Behemoth specifically, as he would have to be able to do in order to win this contest with God. We already know the answer, but let's think about a couple other things. God invites Job to look at him. I love that. Behold, like he's right there. There's one now, Job. Keep your distance, but look at him, right? Look at him. Look at Behemoth and see how powerful it is, even though it is a plant eater and not a meat eater. And they do. They, you know, we had plant-eating dinosaurs. Or the hippo. Hippo eats like 90 pounds of grass a day. I don't know if you ever weighed grass, but that's a lot of grass, okay? 90, 90 pounds of grass. Verse 19, or excuse me, in every observable way, Behemoth illustrates power beyond the ability of man to subdue it, as given in our text. Verse 19 seems to indicate that only the creator of Behemoth could approach it with a sword, which would be symbolic of subduing it or conquering it. And that certainly excludes Job. He's not going to be able to do that. And even if Job could subdue Behemoth, or excuse me, if he could, if Job could subdue this animal, then he would be able to fence it in. He would be able to control its comings and goings. Job would be able to capture it, put a ring in its nose, lead it wherever he wanted it to go. But Job cannot do any of those things with whatever animal is being described here. Whatever Behemoth was, this wild beast was beyond Job's ability to subdue or control in any way. And woven through the description of Behemoth is the clear message that where Job cannot, God can. This has been the point of God speaking to Job all along. Where Job cannot, God can. If you don't get anything out of this, else out of this message, that's sufficient right there. And if God can subdue Behemoth, a creature far beyond Job's control, where does Job stand with God? Can God also subdue and control Job in the same way? Well, of course he can. And what does that say about you and me? Yeah, can God also subdue and control you and me in the same way? And again, the answer is, of course he can. We are subject to him, not the other way around. And Job had gotten that backwards. Now, this is an even longer section very long section, in fact. Uh, I'm going to read all, uh, I'm going to read clear down 34 verses here all at once, all right? Just follow along in your Bible or just listen or whatever you want to do um, as we begin to talk about Leviathan in Job chapter 41, okay? Job chapter 41 and read all 34 verses here. 
God speaking to Job, he says, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook, or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose, or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you, or will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you bind him for your maidens? Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons, or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Probably for more than one reason. Behold, your expectation is false. Will you be laid low even at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And that's the first section here. We'll go on and read 12 through 34. It's kind of a second section describing uh, Leviathan. God continues, I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his orderly frame. Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? Who can open the doors of his face around his teeth? There is terror. His strong scales are his pride. Shut up as with a tight seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezes flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes forth from his mouth. Don't forget those verses. Verse 22. In his neck lodges strength, and dismayed leaps before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together, firm on him and immovable. His heart is as hard as a stone, even as hard as a lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty fear, because of the crashing, they are bewildered. The sword that reaches him cannot avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned into stubble for him. Clubs are regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of the javelin. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads out like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the depths boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a jar of ointment. Behind him he makes a wake to shine. One would think the deep to be gray-haired. Nothing on earth is like him, one made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Once again, as we did with Behemoth, let's consider what animal Leviathan may have been. Not because it's absolute that we understand that, but it's interesting discussion here, I think. The view held by many commentators is that Leviathan was a crocodile. And I have found reference to crocodiles once inhabiting the northern areas of Judah, Syria, and even the Mediterranean Sea. Like saltwater crocs do uh, around Australia, they'll get out and swim in the ocean from island to island. They'll actually surf on the waves, they tell me. Or I read about it, uh, that that's how they get from island to island. But anyway, um, there's a high probability then that Job was familiar with the Nile crocodile. And while many of the things God says about Leviathan could be true of the crocodile, there are some outstanding exceptions. Uh, even in ancient times, crocodiles were often hunted and even captured. Uh, not, I mean, it's a dangerous thing. 
But you get enough people around with enough ropes and, and gear and stuff, and it doesn't require anything uh, particularly fancy to do so, uh, you, you can catch a, a crocodile and, and uh, uh, you can hunt one and, and kill it, whatever, okay? But God portrays Leviathan as being immune to these kinds of human efforts. And uh, depending on your translation, some describe the, the track made by Leviathan in the mud. Uh, that wouldn't seem to describe the tracks made by a crocodile, but, you know, again, it's a little confusing. And then we have those four verses, I said, remember those four verses, that describe light, sparks, smoke, and flame all coming out of Leviathan's mouth. Right? Those things would be a problem for any animal we know of today. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But consider this. What if, what if Leviathan were some sort of now extinct seagoing reptile like the Pliosaur, or possibly extinct, just because we haven't seen one lately doesn't mean they're not still out there, right? Some types of Pliosaur reached 50 feet in length and weighed as much as 12 tons. Well, the largest Nile crocodile that we know about today is about 20 feet long and weighs something a little over a ton. The Pliosaur's teeth were as much as 12 inches long. It had a clearly defined neck, unlike the crocodile. And the possibility of light, sparks, smoke, and flame coming out of its mouth, that still presents a problem, doesn't it? But we don't know whether the Pliosaur or something similar to it or, you know, could, could have done uh, these kinds of things. There are other animals, even today, that have similar qualities. How many of you ever heard of a firefly or a lightning bug or seen one, right? Uh, I remember going back and visiting uh, my sister uh, or when I was a kid. We'd go back and visit my mom's relatives and my dad's relatives back there. And uh, we'd go out at night in the evening, you know, just before dark, and we'd go out and catch your fireflies. And you put them in the jar, and you'd have this jar, and you'd shake them, and they'd give off their light. And then you'd forget them in the jar, and they'd all be dead the next morning. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> but that's pretty cool. It's called bioluminescence, if you want to know the technical term, but it's, it's really cool. I mean, you know, you got an animal, and it's, it's got this glowy thing on it, right? I mean, that's just neat, isn't it? Okay. Well, uh, various sea creatures also generate light. Some do so inside their mouths. Now, that, that might cover the light part, but what about the fire? What about the sparks? What about the smoke? There's a, a, an insect called the bombardier beetle, and it has two chambers... Uh, in its body, actually has three chambers, but it has two uh, chambers that contain a couple of weird chemicals. Well, one's not so weird, but the other one is. One of them is hydro hydroquinone, and the other is hydrogen peroxide. Now, you all have hydrogen peroxide at home, but you probably don't have the hydrogen quinone, although you can actually get this if you want it. Just mixing those two together doesn't do much. But the bombardier beetle, when it's threatened, from those two chambers, it it mixes those two chemicals in a third chamber, and then it adds an enzyme. And that's what causes that mixture to explode. It, it sends a spray of boiling hot caustic chemicals out of its abdomen, and it can aim it, so it sends it to, in whatever direction it thinks the threat is coming from. Now, the combustion chamber in a bombardier beetle is tiny, really tiny. Researchers say that if it were as big as a small car, and I'm not suggesting that's what we have in the case of, of Leviathan, but if it were as big as a small car, the explosive force of this reaction would be like two pounds of TNT going off, which is about the same as three sticks of dynamite. 
Anybody ever work with dynamite? I never have. You worked with dynamite. Three sticks, is that a lot? Three sticks is a lot. Okay. A lot of, okay, that's a lot of explosive force then. Now, so it wouldn't have to be that big. And it didn't say that it was, you know, so big it could, you know, kill every other animal. It's just, it says that there was flame, spark, fire, light, and smoke. Now, is it possible that there was a large, what is now extinct, crocodile-like animal or something like the pliosaur that had this capability on a smaller scale? I think it is possible. Am I saying absolutely that's the case? No, I don't understand all this, but I'm giving you possibilities. Whatever it is, I still believe God is describing a real animal that existed in Job's time, and whatever that animal is, Leviathan is a formidable example of Job's inability to subdue God's creation. And here's what he says about it. The first 11 verses really ask the question of Job, does Leviathan submit to you? In speaking about Leviathan, God first points out to Job that Job has no hope of ever subduing Leviathan. He couldn't catch it like a fish. Leviathan wasn't going to submit to Job willingly. It couldn't be tamed and played with as a pet, nor bought and sold in the marketplace. Leviathan is fierce. No one would dare to taunt or provoke him for fear of what Leviathan would do to him. Even just looking at him was a fearful thing. God uses these qualities of Leviathan to make an important point to Job. In verses 10 and 11, God says, Who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God has backed Job into a logical and a theological corner. If Job knows better than to try to confront, confront Leviathan, then why doesn't he know better than to try to confront God. God doesn't answer to Behemoth or Leviathan, and he certainly doesn't answer to Job. And by the end of verse 11, I think God has pretty well made his point. But God has more to say about Leviathan. And so with his words of rebuke still ringing in Job's ears, he goes on to describe the physical appearance and attributes of Leviathan, painting a picture of a real sea monster. Yeah, we don't think in those terms. We think everything has to be categorized and photographed. and you know, yeah. Sea monster, I think that's pretty appropriate. God's description includes a double layer of armor, tremendous strength, fearsome teeth, breathing out fire and smoke. Neither wood nor bronze can keep him out, impervious to any weapon, causing an incredible disturbance in the sea, to the point where he said it looks like the sea has, a gray, has gray hair. It's roiled the sea so much that there's foam on the surface. Okay, That's what he's describing and inducing fear in those who encounter it. God ends his description of Leviathan with what seems to be an implied contrast to Job. Nothing on earth, Job, nothing on earth is like him, like Leviathan, one made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. And then the implied dig after that. And so what does that make you, kind of, right? God reemphasizes that Leviathan is a created being. One, he says one made. He's a created being, just like Job. Yet Leviathan has no fear of anything, in contrast to Job, who would be terrified by Leviathan. I think Job would readily acknowledge that he has no hope of subduing Leviathan. And I wonder, does he realize then that he has even less hope of forcing God to answer 
to him. Well, Job had declared God's judgments to be lacking in justice. He wanted God to give an account of himself. But when God finally does speak, he doesn't mention Job's suffering at all. God doesn't explain the conversations that he had between himself and Satan regarding Job. Instead, God puts Job in his place, challenging him first to explain the created universe, and Job couldn't. Then God challenged Job to direct or oversee the workings of the animal kingdom. Job couldn't. And in this last section, God challenged Job to do the work that he had accused God of not doing, as in punishing the wicked and upholding the righteous. But to prove that he could do that, Job first had to subdue Behemoth and Leviathan, and Job couldn't. Job had been looking at this situation all wrong not seeing it from God's point of view, but only from his own. Job played the, well, if I were God card. You hear people say that? Well, if I were God, we can be thankful they're not, but you can be thankful you're not either, okay? Anyway, Job played the, well, if I were God card, and now God has played the, I am God and you're not card. I think that's a good one to play in response. Job didn't get what he wanted from God but he got what he needed. Rather than accusing God of injustice and accusing God of mishandling his life, Job needed to see that God is the sovereign, transcendent creator of the universe who doesn't have to answer to anyone. You could put it this way, right? God, don't expect God to play by your rules. God will decide what is right for him to do Not you. Don't expect God to play by your rules. As a result, man's duty is to submit to God, to obey his commands, and to trust him to fulfill his perfect righteousness and faithfulness in whatever way is best, no matter what our circumstances look like. And if we think that physical comfort and financial prosperity are somehow guaranteed indicators of God's blessing, then we don't understand what God allows into our lives in order to help us grow spiritually and to build godly character in us. From the beginning of this book, we have the description of Job. He was a righteous man, blameless in all his ways, but his suffering and his affliction that God allowed into his life caused some of Job's deficiencies to rise to the surface where they could be addressed. Much like what we were talking about in Sunday school this morning. I hadn't planned that when I wrote this. Yeah. So the suffering and affliction that God allowed into Job's life caused some of Job's deficiencies to rise to the surface where they could be addressed. When we experience hardship, affliction, or even persecution, we ought to always pray for God to use those events to purify us And to help us grow spiritually so we can serve him more effectively. And purification is never an easy process. But it is a necessary one if we ever hope to be the people God wants us to be. And so I have a question for you. The question for you is, what does God want for you? And while there may be many answers to that question in details of your life, 
in places you will go, in things that you will accomplish in service to Him. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What does God want for you? He wants you to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3.9 says that God does not wish for any to perish, but He wants for all to come to repentance. What does God want for you? He wants you to come to repentance. And Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. What does God want for you? He wants you to embrace the salvation that he provides and the transformation that that salvation brings about. The grace of God that appeared bringing salvation was his son, Jesus Christ, When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he made our salvation possible. And he also made our purification possible. God wants you to be purified and to have salvation. But these are things that you can only get through faith in Jesus Christ. If you believe in him as God's promised Messiah and Savior, turn away from sin and commit yourself to God's way. We call that repentance. Tell others about your belief in Christ and you're baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive God's salvation and God then can begin his purifying work in you. Will you accept what God wants for you today? And if so, please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.